This is The Script, the official podcast of the NYC Screenwriters Collective, a not-for-profit screenwriting workshop dedicated to teaching the craft of writing for film and television. We are a community of beginner, advanced, and working screenwriters engaged in a specialized script development process to improve our members' scripts and help them break into the business. The Script Podcast is the best parts of our workshop. Our best script doctors, our hottest screenplays, and our best discussions on the screenwriting craft and current events in film and television. So we're coming into high contest season, um, so we wanted to do a, a contest schedule update. Um, placing a contest is one of the best indications your script is ready to be shopped around and provide ammunition to help market your script and give you a chance to receive industry-level critique and provide serious deadlines to write towards, okay? So um, the contest schedule is on our meetup site, but um, the major contests coming out uh, are the Nickel Fellowship on April 10th is the first deadline, and the late deadline is May 1st. Script to Palooza TV Writing Contest, April 15th deadline. New York Television Festival, April 16th to the 30th. Sundance Screenwriting Lab on May 1st, and the IFP Emerging Narrative Week on May 4th. If you guys have any questions, uh, post on the message board uh, at NYC Screenwriters Collective, or uh, you can email us at scriptfeed at gmail.com. Dead nurse lies sprawled down the hallway, visible in the faint glow of some skylights. She's lying there torn open, blood so old it's turned dark brown. Rick, numb, tries to process what he's seeing. He turns back, continues, follow him hobbling slowly, panic increasing as more and more dried blood is revealed on the walls, long smears of it, a handprint or two, and bullet holes, lines of them. Machine guns were fired here. Double door at the end of the hall, a sign, cafeteria. Rick steps into frame. There's a two-by-four jammed through the door's handles on this side. The door handles are chained and padlocked, too. Painted hastily on the left door is a message. Don't open and on the right door, dead. He approaches slowly, wondering what it means. Rick's POV pushing slowly toward the door. The doors heave slowly outward, pushing from the other side. The two-by-four creaks. The chain goes taut. Rick flinches back, stares in horror as fingers probe through the crack before his eyes. Pale, wriggling, fish-white fingers with torn fingernails. Then more fingers appear, all up and down the crack of the door, straining, seeking, faint grunting is heard within, a sound like malevolent, feral pigs. Rick backs away, terrified. That's from the Walking Dead pilot, which we're reviewing today on The Script, the NYC Screenwriters Collective podcast. I'm David Negrin, your host, and I'm here with uh, three other script doctors. I'm Jeremy Engel Johnson. Christopher Theokas. And Paul Epstein. And we're here uh, for this segment. We're going to review the original pilot for The Walking Dead by Frank Darabont. Um, we're going to analyze it from the perspective of how do you write your own original pilot, if you, if you want to. Um, what were the strengths and weaknesses? What do you have to accomplish in an original pilot, a one-hour drama? And um, uh, what, was, what did Frank ac- accomplish in this draft? Um, do you guys want to start out with this pilot checklist that I was talking about? You were talking about a pilot checklist? I was. Chris, why you're already in my face. You're already, like, seconds in. I don't think you're in the room at that point. I wasn't in the room at yeah, that point. That was actually intentional. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to talk about it. 
Well, Paul wants to talk about it. So, Go ahead, Paul. things to accomplish in a pilot. And now this is more for one-hour drama, because sitcoms is a whole other story. But, you know, a pilot isn't just an episode of TV, okay? It has a lot of other things you have to do, um, and you have to have an episode. So, in a, in a pilot, I think you need to introduce your protagonist and your antagonist, right? And you have to introduce the flaws and gifts of both of these characters. Um, you have to introduce the universe, and the rules of the universe. You have to introduce um, the series arc as well as the episode arc. And hopefully, you know, in the first or second episode, you complete the episode arc. You know, it just should be self-contained television, but there should also be series arcs that are set up that we talk about later, that we see later. Um, introduce recurring characters, their flaws and, and their gifts. And by gifts, I mean like superpowers. Like, what are they good at? Like, why are they here? Um, where in the, you know, where in the, the trope of the, the... What do they have to offer to move the story along? Not exactly. necessarily flight or, you know, laser beams out of their eyes. Yeah, yeah, but if laser beams is a great superpower, but we're not going to have that in, in, this, in this series. Introduce series conventions, things that are going to happen over and over again in a TV show. Um, it's important to have in a pilot a strong thematic opening, something that draws us in and expresses the theme of uh, the story of the of the whole series, and then a cliffhanger ending. Like that's you got to go out. First episode's got to be a cliffhanger to get us to watch the second one. So um, that giving being said, who wants to go first? Jeremy, tell us about the Walking Dead pilot. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to look at uh, with this pilot was, uh, and, it, and it's a, a problem that's kind of unique to zombie type stories. You're our you're our resident. Zombie, you are a resident zombie expert, right? For, for whatever that's worth, I am the resident zombie expert. Zombographer. Yeah, exactly. We we prefer um, we prefer some other terms for it, but you know that'll work too. But so one of the things that's a real challenge with this sort of script is you have to establish not just the world, but you have to establish the, the specific rules of this world because it's from those rules that all the suspense is derived, right? So um, this is an interesting episode because it kind of happens, you know, it, it, it's for the most part Rick is is interacting with strangers. Uh, he doesn't know any of these people, but he's learning the learning the rules as he goes. And and some of the rules are spelled out very explicitly, and some of them are are more implicit. And I I, I kind of just went through, and I think I got seven or eight of them that that I found interesting. Um, you know, we see early on with the part that David led with that um, that scene where we see the the fingers reaching through the cafeteria door. Um, you know, there's something going on, like some, and something catastrophic has happened. And part of this is just like. Rick's kind of dawning awareness of what of what's what's happening, but like the dead are alive, so that's rule one, and it and it leads to, to Rick kind of, you know, understanding all this. Um, there's a great line in here that I don't think even made it into the show, but uh, Daco and the stairwell of a Georgia hospital. There's the whole thing when he drops the matchbook mm -hmm. and he sees all that stuff, and they didn't they didn't do that in the show. Uh, um, they just went straight, I think, outside to where yeah, he all opens the, bodies the door and up. see the bodies. Well, it's, it is kind of they both accomplish the same thing. Exactly, it's, it's they, a repetition of the idea. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't need to they didn't need to show us the rule twice. So they just showed us once. Uh, they may well have shot it, by the way, and then for editing purposes, they might have just edited it out. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the second rule. Um, Apparently, you know, it's it's you know, headshot, kill shot. It's 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 a standard zombie rule. You know, we see okay. that see that in Zombie Land. I didn't know there are standard zombie. Is there as much standard zombie rules as there are vampire standard rules? There's probably two main ones, right? The shot well, what, to the head, and I think that's about it, really. And then you get it by being bitten. Uh, yeah. Okay. Get it by being bitten. But I think there's a lot of variety. Like if you look at like 28 Days Later versus mm -hmm. this, I mean, the, these are dead people reanimated in a in a 
you know, very minor way in The Walking Dead. Well, like, 28 Days Later is some sort of... It's a virus. It's a virus, it's a you know, and, virus, and they, yeah. they're just running around with red Morgan eyes. says on the news there was something about a quote-unquote virus. So we, they do mention a virus as part of the, the setup here, but right. they never get into it. And also, I think well, one of the things, uh, one of the other rules of zombies is how fast they move, right? There's right. slow-moving zombies and there's fast-moving zombies. But that's a 28 Days Later rule, right. though, that was just recently implemented. And I think, in, and we're going to get to, uh, 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 what's the big zombie movie coming out this year? Um, World War Z. World War Z. Those are fast-moving zombies, or at least the trailer says so. Yeah. So go ahead. Jerry. Okay. Other rules. Um, the the big rule conversation is what, what he has with Morgan after Morgan uh, and Dwayne kind of hit him on the back of the head and bring him in, and uh, they start talking. And, and Morgan, you know, he's like, "Wow, you don't even know what's happened here." So he starts laying it out. Um, but he, you know, we we figure out like, um, you know, that uh, like Morgan takes him out and he kills his first walker. You know, there's that great moment where he kind of pauses, like I need a moment afterwards. Mm. Um, but he, he learns you gotta, you know, it's better not to use a gun. You know, you don't want to draw them in because um, of the sound. Sound the draws sound. them. Okay, sound that's important. A that's a that's an important rule. Um, and and it, as he's leaving, uh, Morgan gives him a, a probably the most important rule, which is you know he says they may not seem like a big deal as one, uh, but watch out for them in groups. That's trouble. And of course, this is foreshadowing where we're going to end up about 15 minutes later. Yeah. So. Um, you know, those seem to be the big ones. Uh, one implicit rule, I think, is is Morgan's difficulty in um, putting his wife down. You know, he wants to he wants to finish her. She's she's been haunting them. His son is just like clearly going to have post traumatic stress after this whole experience, um, and and he wants to kill kill her, but he can't. And he, you know, he doesn't go with them to Atlanta, and it almost makes me wonder if one of the reasons he had to stay. I mean, I think he knew he had some unfinished business, yeah. but he can't leave her. This becomes like I was saying. This becomes a a series convention on the show. The the loved one who's been turned and dealing with your loved ones being turned, right? How do you, you know that they're a zombie or they're a walker and uh, you, you don't want to put them out of their misery, but they're dangerous to everyone else, so you have to do it. And this comes back over and over. This is a great serious convention of The Walking Dead. Definitely. Anything uh, less? I think I think I'm good for now. Okay, great, great. Chris, Walking Dead pilot. So, uh, having read the comic... At least up until, um, spoiler for Walking Dead, that <clears throat> they get to the prison. Uh, I was actually happy to see that they played around with it uh, in terms of, uh, of the uh, timeline. In the comic, it starts out very slow. He wakes up, Rick wakes up from uh, his coma and goes from there. Okay. Whereas this opens with a lot of action. And but what did, we, what did we do with the first ten minutes of this script? Why, why was it important to have... The, it's a the, lot. It's a lot more exciting visually because mm-hmm. it's like you set up that like he has to kill this well, kill in quotes this little girl. Yeah, and that's it, it. Shows the you know just everything you would have to do in a world like this. That's even you that's like that it. big thematic opening that we're talking about. It's a world where a good guy, a man who's a good sheriff, has to shoot little girls. This right. is the universe we live in. But it also because the I think this is a cinematic rule in general. There are two villains that you can kill without remorse in the movies and in TV: mm-hmm. Nazis and zombies. Because the zombies are soulless, so it's okay. Right. And Nazis are Nazis, so right. you can kill them so, anyway. So okay. So um, would you say zombies are the main antagonists in this story, in this film, or in this series? You know? Ultimately, I'd say no. And and 
I mean, that's that's a, a trope I think of zombie the zombie story. Anyway, it's not really they're about a the force zombies, of antagonism, but they're not really. It, ultimately, it's like in most zombie movies, the force of antagonism is a, a non-zombie. Right, humans start we start feeding on each other. Right, right. and so it's like is you know it's like the Walking Dead aren't really the zombies that kind of thing. And that's actually one thing I like about this is that it wasn't too. I don't think it was very explicit in dialogue setting up the the thematic elements that are going to be coming along. But they showed it, you know, like he has to kill this little girl. You know, they have to shoot, the guy has to shoot his, his I guess, late wife. Mm-hmm. And it's dealing with these really awful things in this new world. And, and it is kind of typical to do that kind of thing in zombie films. I don't think it gets, I don't think there are many previous zombie films where they get explicit, like you have to kill your wife. Um, yeah, they elaborate I'm, on The Walking Dead. They elaborate on the rules a bit here, wouldn't you say? And that's yeah. another thing is, like, it didn't feel like reading this that they were, you know, uh, going over the rules very explicitly either. It, it, it was well, integrated pretty But it's, it's in the action. So, like, when, when they club uh, Rick over the head, they do it because they're worried that he's been bit. Which right, is and an they don't want to make sound and so on. Yeah. And, and the thing with him about the wound. Yeah. Did, What's did the nature of your wound? Right. Where's it's, that it's blood beautiful. from? It's beautiful. It's exposition. While the story, the A story of the, of the episode is moving forward. The A story of the episode to me is uh, Rick wakes up, has to figure out what the hell has happened. And by... At the, about the midpoint? About or, exactly yeah. at the midpoint, he finds out that it's possible that his wife and kid escaped, and now I've got to go find them. So the, the, the other thing is, like, Zombieland played with this idea of the rules. They explicitly state them. Rule number one is this. Rule number two is that. Rule number three is cardio. Rule number four is, you know, always check the backseat of your car. And so <laughs> because it's like these things are going to happen. And, and that's Zombieland why... Zombieland is hilarious. That's a zombie comedy, right? Right, and it was supposed to be a TV show. It became a movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So th- what I liked about The Walking Dead was it wasn't very explicit. It, it did integrate the rules very cleanly. You know, the, the zombies in the cafeteria pushing out made me think, well, they know he's there. And then it, it's, it's built upon with the late wife knowing that not just the people are in the house, but specific people are in the house. Yeah. And I think that I, they never explicitly say it, but clearly it's alluded to. And, and I don't, you know, I think your average viewer can, you know, come up and say that's definitely what's happening. I think they have a different obligation towards... You know, the making, setting the rules of zombieism and what the zombies are and so forth, because they also have to parse out everything that happens related to the zombies, not only for the length of the movie, but really for episode after episode, and presumably for four or five seasons. Yeah. yeah. So whatever rules they set up, they have to actually be responsible about, so that 20 episodes later, well, they're not catching themselves up in some fashion. Zombie movie, you just say there's zombies, right. you start cutting off heads, and you get to the past. Right, but and, the, in, and movie to movie builds on the... the on the mythos of the zombie. So you have Day of the Dead has, you know, a specific kind of zombie, but 28 Days Later builds on that by saying, well, they can be fast, too. Yeah. And then the Dawn of the Dead remake has them fast and still doing the things they did in the original Dawn of the Dead. And I love the humility of The Walking Dead to never, ever use the word zombie well, I, in the I, show. I have a question. I don't know. I'd like to hear some opinions. And I have a theory, but the show doesn't use the word zombie, Never. obviously, so why, they're walkers. why not? They're walkers. The it, it, well, that's, it's a big question. I think it's cracked.com or overthinkingit.com asks, like, do these movies where zombies exist outside of Zombieland, do they know about zombies at all? Are they in the culture? Because <laughs> that would help. <laughs> that would you really wouldn't have help. to learn. It's if like, you've watched The Walking Dead, it would be very helpful if you you're in The Walking Dead. I think they're making a smart choice here. I think that they're, they're deciding that in the world of uh, Walking Dead, zombies don't exist. Then they don't have to deal with 
the mountain of pop culture about zombies that we already have. So oh, yeah, and that's yeah. definitely an artistic decision. Zombieland played it differently, and you know, I think I think they played it differently. And I thought yeah, I'm thinking of Lost Boys, the scene in the comic book shop where they're talking about all the rules of right, vampires that they learned from comic books right. that are going to be applicable when Kiefer Sutherland shows up. Right. So they know how to fight a vampire, yeah. and, it, and it would be interesting. But Walking Dead, I, I even think. Um, with that as an option, I, I don't think it would have worked that well in Walking Dead because it seems more of a comedy conceit. So, but overall, I mean, not following the show. I mean, I really like this as a script. I mean, Frank Darabont shouldn't disappoint as a writer. Mm -hmm. One would hope. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, you know, I, I would want. I definitely would want to see it. I figure it's probably on Watch Instant on Netflix, so I can probably catch up with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was the restructuring of how the, it, it goes in terms of the timeline. I thought it was great. I thought it was better. In terms of a you know TV show to do it that way, than instead of doing it the way the comic book did. Tremendous. Paul, yeah. Paul, tell us tell us more about the script and uh, anything on the nature of the the writing, the structure, that kind of thing. Yeah, I uh, you know I read the script and it really is a remarkable piece of TV writing, um, and I really enjoyed it. I'm not that familiar with the show like some other people here, um, and now I totally do want to watch the show, having read the pilot. I was flipping the pages like crazy. Um, the pilot demonstrates uh, three things that all great TV writing has, and uh, especially the pilot scripts need to have, which are pace, economy, and attention to detail. Um, now, the pace uh, comes to is readily apparent in the first two pages, and in just a couple of lines, we establish both the world in a very, very economical way. Uh, it says, world Georgia, farmland, blue sky, uh, fluffy cat clouds, something like that. So immediately as the viewer and then as the audience, you can instantly pick out in your head what this actually looks like. And that just took two or three lines. Then we meet uh, Frank Grimes. He's driving over a hill. He comes Rick. Around, uh, sorry, uh, Rick Grimes. Um, and he shows up and is, he's very, very quickly described as average Joe, country sheriff, a little bit unshaven, looks tired, looks recognizable. There's something out, something slightly off, but nothing to, that would make you think twice. And then instantly you reveal that he's pulled up to a gas station that's surrounded by deserted, abandoned cars. And instantly we now know that the recognizable, friendly, safe world that we've just seen is actually a world turned upside down, that something terrible has happened. And this is all on the first page. And this yeah. Is, um, and so just... Uh, Let's say it even begins with Rick himself, because he's supposed to be a you know, representative of, of authority, and he looks like crap. Right. Yeah. Right. There's no spit, he's not spit polished, yeah, yeah, Frank Wright. Yeah. Not spit polished. And then he himself, and then we quickly show that this is a new world even to him because quickly shows that he doesn't know what to make of this. He doesn't know how to deal with this uh, abandoned gas station surrounded by burnt out wrecks and cars. But, he, but his old, his old uh, morality kicks in. He, he hears a little girl and says, oh, right. I have to save you. He literally right. says that. Right, exactly. Um, and so um, that gets us to the next point, which I will talk about is economy. So, without wasting any time, after, um, after establishing this uh, situation that Fra uh, Rick finds himself in, he's immediately caught up in this uh, dramatic confrontation with a little girl. And as uh, David is saying, he hears a girl, uh, he spots a girl's feet running around amongst these abandoned cars, and his instinct is to save her. And before long, uh, really before long, just a few sentences later, she's revealed to be a zombie, and of course he has to do this terrible thing, which is kill this girl. Um, and that establishes our universe where a good sheriff has to shoot little girls, right? That's and it the, shows us right. that, there's, that the rules of this world are there aren't any rules that we're going to understand. And it's, yeah. just, it's just amazing. And that's perhaps page two this is happening. Yeah. And then it ends, the teaser ends, with all of the dead bodies that he's found at this gas station coming back to life and swiveling their zombie heads or their walker heads to him. 
Um, and then we're out. And then you hit the pedals, and then you're in the story. And it's just uh, breathtakingly fast and fully realized. It's really, really strong writing. What was your third point? Um, detail. And I'll, I can finish with that. Um, the passage that you read right at the beginning of the podcast is a really, really nice piece of writing. Um, it's brief, but it's so detailed that you can so vividly see exactly what Rick sees. Hospital corridor, machine gun bullet holes in the wall, um, and it's particularly vivid when he describes the cafeteria doors that have a two-by-four through the handles. They're also padlocked. There's a hand-painted signs, don't open dead, and then this amazing detail of the ghastly little fingers poking through the door, uh, just image by image. I mean, really, it's like a painting but with words, the way he's absolutely beautifully detailed this scene in such a way that you are viscerally and vividly there. And again, it's very brief, it's fast-paced, and uh, the details are perfect, and it's terrifying because of that. And the, the drama and the tension that you, you experience uh, is, is overwhelming, and it makes you just absolutely want to know what's going to happen next. Fantastic. Um, okay, so back to our pilot checklist, right? We introduce our protagonist and our antagonist. We've got Rick. Uh, even Shane is kind of a dynamic character, like kind of a partner to Rick. Uh, Rick is like the, the goody-two-shoes sheriff, and Shane is the cowboy, right? Um, our antagonist in, uh, starts out as, you know, some, some, uh, some criminals who end up shooting Rick, but then our real antagonist becomes the walkers and the plague itself, right? Um, introduced... Uh, the universe. We we talked several times about uh, you know how this universe and the rules of the universe have been established. Um, we introduce uh, an episode arc, which is a Rick's got to figure out what he what's happening. B, I got to go find my family. Right. Um, we uh, introduce a series arc, which is the world has come to an end, and we're gonna have to figure our way out of it. Which is the post-apocalyptic, you know. Uh, uh, genre is like that's you know endless possibilities for a series arc. Okay, uh, we introduce some series conventions um, like uh, fighting walkers, like killing them. There's like this this happens every episode. Some great kills, you know. There's, there's people on the internet like counting Walking Dead kills and different ways you kill them and stuff like that. Uh, but the series convention of the the turned loved one, right? That you have to deal with your loved ones getting turned. Um, the uh, st strong thematic opening. The first, I, I, wanted, I was, wanted to get it, the, the reason that maybe they, they varied from the graphic novel and they set up the, the little introduction with Rick and Shane is because they knew you've got to do this sort of ordinary world stuff, like what was it like before right. the apocalypse? Oh, yeah. and, and that's an important relationship too, as we'll come to, to learn later on. Um, Absolutely. And, and you need to really see that these two guys are actually friends. And it's, it's a very well-written scene that establishes a relationship and there's a lot of kind of BS at, at first about you know the thing about the light switch and mm -hmm. uh, and then it quickly turns deadly serious and then right. it's, and then it right as it finishes it gets cut off and you know the call comes in that's right we, and we do get it uh, we do get a, a seed of the fact that Rick and Lori have some marital problems which is going to escalate later and after the world ends right so also one thing I wanted to you know I do want to criticize we, we shouldn't just shouldn't be all positive one thing that I was missing from this pilot um, one of the things you're supposed to do with a character, you're supposed to introduce the protagonist or character's flaws. We should also introduce their superpower, the thing that they're really good at. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Rick's good at. 
I don't know. I don't know that the scene where they set up all the shootout and stuff. He didn't sort of like get shot because he was trying to save the rookie or the old guy or even his brother Shane. You know, his he he, he just gets shot, and I'm well, kind of like, is would, this guy a good cop? I would like, argue that that actually is where they set up the actual protagonist of the series because if you look at the entire uh, pilot, the walkers are all over the place. But who hurts Rick? Another human being, and it's a surprise. Mm-hmm. It's not like somebody walked up to him and shot him, and it's not like he was bitten or anything like that. So the only people that are hurting other people are human beings, yeah. which is a thematic reality, I think, of the entire. That's series. another serious convention: is that you know the you know the worst worst danger typically is another is yeah. another human being, and that's right. a typical thing for zombie. We're worse than The Walking Dead, and, and so I think what Rick Rick's power is, and I'm you know, making this argument based on just the you know just the pilot and what I've read is that he's like a, a, a decent guy in this lawless, now lawless right. world where they're, you know, he, he's He a, is the moral compass, he and, is and a, that gets yeah. at him over the course of the series. That, that, that totally hamstrings him a lot because he wants to be a good guy in this new evil world. He sort of has the power to be, to do the right thing under any circumstance, and that's what makes him a hero in a way. He's the one person that is going to find the moral thing to do, the right thing, the, the, the safe thing to do, uh, while the world is burning down, you, 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 you're right about that. And when he meets Morgan later, and Morgan's instructing him on in how to shoot the zombies, the, the walkers correctly, and he's like, "Let me ask you again: these people are dead." Right. He's like double checking. He's like, "Is it okay to be doing all and, this?" And if, if I'm and the not guy's mistaken, like, he continues to wear the uniform throughout the series instead mm-hmm. of just getting into something probably maybe more comfortable. He wears the uniform. That's great. You're right. right. He could change. He, but he the doesn't. rest of the series, he wears the sheriff uniform. So, you know, it's kind of like Captain America running around with, you know, the the, the American flag. It's just he's a symbol of authority from a time from before. And Rick is a symbol of authority from the previous era, because it's, you know, before the walkers and after the walkers. It's an interesting question, though. Is it authority as in control, or is it it civilization as a law and order? Is it a symbol of the power of humanity to regulate itself, to not be uncivilized. I would say the latter, uh, in, but in a very specific way. I wouldn't say it's just in general, because I think as the series would go on, it would show that there are ways to order society anew, but is Rick's way, the American way, let's say, mm-hmm. better than what's coming up? And, and it's going to become an anachronism at some point, like the idea that we can enforce any of those kind of values. I mean, this... It's, it, That's one of the things, right, it's very Lord of the Flies. When shit goes down, excuse me, when stuff goes down, um, we've got to start. We, we don't have the uh, uh, the luxury of morality and always do the right thing. Yeah, and the straw man just sort of steps forward and takes control, and that's where Rick's hero power comes true. He's just the strong man. Just just to sum it up, what about that ending? How did we end this episode? It's spectacular. I thought it was visually incredible because the tank surrounded by all these things. Again, yeah. another authority figure being overrun by the Did you order. think Rick was going to die? I mean, you kind of don't see how he could possibly get out of that situation. You know that he's going to survive, but I was convinced... The only reason I thought he was going to live is I knew that just because there's a series coming that he's supposed to, but if there was any reason not to think there wasn't a series, I was certain. That moment was so well written when he's under the tank and they're all around him, and Frank Darabont actually writes, Rick knows he's going to die. He shows him putting a gun in his mouth. He's going to take his own life. Yeah, and that was extremely second, well done. Way to, way, way to close an episode. How he gets out of it is interesting. He climbs into that tank, and, he, and he's, he's trapped in there. And, and he's, you know, that's another serious convention, is this, that the only way to survive is to inflict yourself into captivity. 
and we see that a lot in season three. That's right. And and so it's it's a minor little thing, but you know it's just like with with this hope and with the survival comes this this kind of ongoing the, the, the gates theme. the actual the the gates to keep the barbarians out. Right. But they may have again. I my only criticism as a writer is he may have given the game away a tiny bit because in the very last minute, in the last few sentences of the pilot, radio springs to life. And some voice says, hey, dumbass, I know you're in the tank. And the implication is, okay, you're going to be fine. Just don't do mm-hmm. anything stupid. So it does defeat the tension just a little bit. Slightly, but we still want to see what happens. I still want to see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but they may have parsed it just a tiny bit where there's some doubt about, hey, did you make it? Are you in the tank? Does the radio work? Something else that would have maintained the pressure just a little bit on, uh, on Rick. Rick is a capital M, capital C main character. And and for me, just that is is... is says that he's going to live, and it's exciting what he does, don't get me wrong, I loved it, the tank, and the whole visual of it, but I know that he's going to be in the next episode, so what would really have shocked me is if, like, they just date him, <laughs> <laughs> and just went back to Shane and Lori, and just yeah. like, hey, let's go on All right, here. on the just ate him note, <laughs> thanks, Paul, thanks, Chris, thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank yeah. you, David. Yes, uh, it's just spoiler alert, we're going to talk about, um, not just the pilot now, we're going to talk about up to... Uh, the current season, so if you haven't seen, uh, if you're not up to date, uh, full, you know, 12 episodes in the series, season three, um, you may want to skip to the next segment of the podcast. Jeremy, how does the pilot foreshadow the rest of the series? <laughs> how does the pilot? Well, I was, just, you know, I was just talking about that a minute ago um, with the captivity theme. Yes, uh, captivity. You know, we've, we've got this, this and, and, and one of the things that, that uh, you know, and I think this, the challenge that they faced are now in their third season is how do we keep raising the stakes? And and this is a show where I think a, there's a, actually a lot of periods of time that pass between large Walker incidents. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of season two was just like hanging out at the farm. I think a lot of people thought season two was slow. Right. But you're right. The farm is a captivity, right? Um, the prison we get to is captivity. Woodbury, the town, is captivity. It's Yeah, it's a series of... You know, we've got to create walls, these boundaries, to keep the barbarians out. Right. Um, what was the other thing we were going to talk about? Um, well, I think the other thing that comes with the captivity uh, theme, too, is, is uh, you know, it's often hand in, hand in, in glove, is, is this idea of madness and what's real and what's not. And that's one of the things we're starting to explore a little bit. And, and I, I mean, I, I guess I'd be interested in what you think about where Rick's kind of hero arc has gone. You know, okay, I love, I love the, the Rick... Um, I love the arc with Rick be basically finding out that he can't be a good man anymore. That he cannot be on the moral high ground anymore in this new universe. And Shane over and over has to tell him about it. right? And say, you cannot be the good guy. You can't save everybody. You can only save your wife, your kid, and, and us, our, our group. And I love that because it's a, it's a deconstructing of a man and his whole, his whole like outlook on the world. you know. And he's trying... Um, the the episodes later on where uh, you know after Laurie's killed is and 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 Rick loses it like that's all very disorienting for me. Whenever a main character gets like loses it, it's just like well you lose it through their eyes and I don't think that works very well. Yeah, yeah. Thing, uh, I was uh, not being familiar with the show past the pilot really and understanding the understanding the, the the buzz and the theme and the, and the sense of the show. One thing that does seem promising about all this is since there is a post apocalyptic world and they're rebuilding a civilization or a new order out of the ashes of the old, it seems that there's potential there that even if the walkers kind of fade into the background for a few episodes or disappear for a part of a season, 
there's enough storytelling to be told about people surviving Absolutely. in the absence. Absolutely. Of- this series succeeds because of the human drama, not about the walkers. You know, it's about it's about the characters. This is very Joss Whedon in that it's like less about you know the, the the science fiction universe or the zombie fiction universe or even even the West Wing, which I love. The best moments are not about politics. It's about the characters, about the human beings in it. And um, it does reference uh, Battlestar Galactica, which is a great series as well. Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because they're not you know blowing up Cylons every minute of every episode. There's plenty of episodes and. Plenty of story that are dedicated to the, yeah. the, the, the new in civilization. Fact it, in fact, it gets old. Killing zombies gets old, yeah. you know, real quick. So and, it's and that's why we need, the, you know, apparently we need the governor, um, who's like the most annoying antagonist in the history of antagonists. <laughs> why is at he least, annoying? At least as he's been cast. Because yeah. he's so obviously, like, evil. I mean, yeah. he keeps heads in fish tanks. Yeah. In all fairness, I keep heads in fish tanks, too. I know, Chris, but, but, but we've it, been over this before. It's, it's people who've already died, I'll admit. I don't uh, kill that, anyone that for them. That's why we won't... my hand, right. That's why we don't go to your house, Chris. Yeah. You know, and I've invited you several times. Wait, back to the... I, I mentioned the Joss Whedon thing. Joss Whedon is a... Uh, TV show uh, showrunner writer who's known for killing off main characters. Yeah, he well, may it's, he, it's... he may have started that trend, but I think it's actually the evolution of the the, t- the drama, uh, uh, the TV drama, um, uh, just the evolution of TV drama at all that we figured out that you you don't just have to kill. Um, main characters at the end of a series or at the end of a season. You can do it mid-season and totally, you know, like, well, change thing, things up. Well, the thing with Joss Whedon is it's not necessarily main characters, it's favorite characters. Favorite characters. So, like, when, in spoiler for Serenity, yeah. when they kill the character Wash, yeah. who everybody loved, he's not a main character. He pilots the ship. You know, beyond that, he, you know, he's a great character. He's a good everybody guy. Him. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what hits home, but... You know, uh, Mal, the main character, yeah. lives through the whole thing. There's, there's nothing more disturbing in The Walking Dead than when we find Sophia is dead. Yeah, that's that's one of the best bits of writing of the whole show. They set that up for episodes, like four or five episodes. The girl's lost, and you're just like, and you're, they're lo- they're yeah. looking for her. Yeah, and then they're living and next the little to the girl. barn, and they're they're looking for her. They're out looking and for she's her. Been and been there the whole time, and she's already dead. Yeah. In a way, Fantastic. In a way, you want them to, to establish that early on because then you want to show the audience this show when you watch, nobody is safe, and you want to set that yeah. up as early as in the game as possible. Great setups and payoffs, like the killing off major characters. Killing off major characters is a is a great series convention. And I think the the Walking Dead people do just watch. And it's popularized now. I mean, uh, and even Downton Abbey's doing it. Yeah, you know? oh, Downton Abbey's doing it. But no, no. But you know what's there? And there's like a Facebook page or like an online movement. To not kill Daryl because people love Daryl so much. There's like, if you kill Daryl, I'm gonna stop watching That's The Walking Dead. Because the producers they yep. can spend an entire season like teasing you. We're gonna kill Daryl. We're, We're gonna kill, kill Daryl. He has his own endorsements now. I saw today he was on like a like a, a, a cable commercial. Yeah, yeah. He, he's yeah, brilliant. He cleans up. He has to clean up. He's like, yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's he's a brilliant actor, brilliant actor. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna end this segment. Um, the Walking Dead, Dead. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Paul. Now I'm gonna cue this thing. We're live. Something happened in the episode that we've been talking about in the entire podcast. We had this uh, notion of one of the series conventions of The Walking Dead being uh, how we uh, characters have to deal with a loved one being turned. And that started in the very pilot with Morgan and his poor wife. 
and the son Dwayne having to deal with that. And then episode 12, season three, right as after our podcast is recorded, what happens, Jerry? So, you know, maybe it was because it was fresh in our mind, but some of us were watching the episode after the recording and uh, Rick goes back to his hometown to get some guns and uh, there's just this sense that something's going to harken back to that first episode and sure enough, somebody comes out, a sniper comes out on the roof and it turns out to be Morgan, the long lost character from the very first episode from the pilot. Yeah. And, and one of the things, you know, I was thinking about what you had said about that, that series convention and, and one of the things that, that jumped out at me with this whole episode was that uh, we were kind of left with this ambiguous ending with regard to Morgan and how he handled the situation with his wife. But we get this great epilogue that oh. turns out that, you know, he can't pull the trigger. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And it came back to bite his son because what happened? He went underground to go foraging and he came back and Dwayne was standing there and he had his gun out and his mother was there all zombified. And uh, he couldn't pull the trigger, and so Dwayne ends up getting eaten by his mom. And here are the parallels. I kept asking, um, what is uh, what is the the superpower of Rick? What is our protagonist's superpower? And somebody in the meeting last night said, Rick does what needs to be done. That's his superpower. He always does, despite his moral uh, 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 compass, he does what needs to be done. And you know what? On the pilot, he shot the woman in the street that he met, right? right. And in the uh, pilot, Morgan couldn't shoot his wife. And then later, Walking Dead, his son, Rick's son, Carl, shoots his own mom, right? Does what's Dwayne, necessary. And Dwayne couldn't shoot his own mom, right? Right. And so he ends up dead with the parallels, huge. And, and and what's the choice here? And it's and it's interesting too because we've got we've got Rick going off the deep end, and we've got Morgan, who's clearly gone off the deep end. I mean, he's graffitied his walls, he's booby trapped, you know, the whole block around where he lives, and the guy has lost it. And uh, you know, it's it's an interesting implication of what happens if you don't follow up what's absolutely necessary in the Walking Dead world. But almost as soon as it's as the episode's over, they realize they're going to leave. Uh, uh, Morgan, there. I wanted him back. I wanted them. To, I wanted them to take him in somehow. Maybe, maybe he'll have a future next. Yeah, we'll see. Um, something, something's going to happen here. But it was nice to see a familiar face harkening uh, back two and a half seasons. Fantastic. So we get a great Walking Dead epilogue, and we get a great epilogue for the script podcast episode two. Perfect. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you, David. In our next segment. We've got Patrick Penta, one of our script doctors, to introduce uh, a recurring segment, something new. Um, pleased to present to you the Baron. Good evening and welcome to Baron's Corner a place where you and I have been allotted in a magnanimous gesture by the producers three minutes to explore the misty side streets of modern cinema. Here there are no muscular superheroes, no invincible government agents, and never a mention of franchised hobbits. Here, by the grace of Apollo, we shall endeavor to cast a slender shaft of light on smaller idols. Well, the hullabaloo with this year's Oscar awards is momentarily over, and no mention of one of my favorite films of 2012. 
the deliciously entertaining A Late Quartet, starring Mark Evanier on first violin, second fiddle by Philip Seymour Hoffman, Catherine Keener on viola, and Christopher Walken on cello. A thrilling story about an aging New York City string quartet struggling with Beethoven's difficult late Opus 131 and the departure of their cellist. An admixture of romantic entanglements somehow manages not to involve Catherine Keener. An oversight, I'm sure, but there the Baron betrays himself. Showing musicians doing their thing has never been easy in film. The reality of making music, rehearsing and practice is a thin fare to watch. We just want to get to the right performance of that music, but then it stops being a movie and becomes a musical. Perhaps that's why the film developed the ribald subplots? I don't know. And exactly how does one show the rehearsal of a movement marked Andante, Manon Tropo, E Molto Cantabile, Piumoso, Andante Moderato, etc., etc.? I find it amusing, don't you, that two of the Oscar nominations for Best Score were films starring Muppets. I suppose there's no room for Beethoven in this world anymore, certainly not at the Academy. Brentano Quartet, please accept a humble apology on their behalf. They know not what they do. Still, I suppose some art is meant to exist in occluded hollows and caverns subterranean, to someday be rediscovered by some future generation, or at the very least enjoy some juicy overseas sales. Late Quartet was well-written, superbly acted, and had a terrific score, and I suppose it is a triumph that it was made at all. Well, I'm afraid I must bid you adieu. The producer is making that familiar motion of dragging her forefinger the length of her neck, and uh, Zutaleur, I see my butler has brought me my port, and what I was assured by eBay seller Dirty Socks 89 as the very last box of Twinkies from their now shuttered factory. Dear listener, you can't see me but I'm choosing the periwinkle blue evening ascot as I adjourn in my suede slippers to the fire. Look for the small films, my friends, and we'll meet next time in the Baron's Corner. The Script is a monthly podcast brought to you by the NYC Screenwriters Collective, produced and edited by Tawny Foskett, if you live in New York City, sign up for our workshops at meetup.com under NYC Screenwriters Collective. Join our Facebook page, follow our Twitter at ScriptFeed, or you can email us at scriptfeed at gmail.com. <laughs>